the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. This evening we are starting a new teaching series entitled Resisting Empire, a series where we'll be working our way through the story of the Old Testament book of Esther. The writer sets the scene for us right at the beginning of chapter 1. There we read, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Now, whilst there is some scholarly debate about exactly how King Xerxes fits into the timeline of the Persian Empire, Many historians believe this Xerxes to be the son of Darius I and the grandson of Cyrus the Great. Now, if that's correct, then King Xerxes came from an illustrious family. Both his father and his grandfather played important roles in helping God's exiled people return to their homeland in Judah, granting not only the permission to return, but also supplying resources and money to assist with the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And if we have identified King Xerxes correctly, then his reign dates from sort of 486 to 465 BC, almost a century after the first group of exiles left Babylon to return to Judah. During the reigns of Darius and Cyrus, many thousand Jewish exiles left Persia, but many thousands didn't, choosing instead to remain existing as an ethnic subgroup within the empire attempting as best they were able to preserve their culture and worship in the midst of a polytheistic pagan setting. Now, for many scholars over several centuries, the inclusion of the book of Esther into the canon of scripture is quite controversial. The Hebrew scholar S.R. Driver writes this in his book, The Introduction to the Literature of the Old Testament. In passing to Esther from the other books of the Old Testament, we fall from heaven to earth. Not only does the name of God not appear in the book, but the point of view is purely secular. The spirit of Esther is not that which prevails generally in the Old Testament. And whilst for many the absence of God makes the book seem purely secular, others take the view that God's apparent absence in them is the most important feature, since the whole point of the book is to show that God is always at work, even when we can't see that work explicitly or even when situations seem particularly bleak. Yet the structure of the story itself suggests order and suggests providence, since it's designed as a chiasm. The word chiasm comes from a letter in the Greek alphabet, chi, which is identical in shape to the English letter X. The shape of the letter illustrates the idea of a chiasm, where two separate lines meet together in the middle, creating a symmetrical shape. The book of Esther is designed in perfect symmetry. There are key words and visual clues in the first part of the story that are later mirrored in the second, with the pivot of the whole story, the joining, happening at the start of chapter 6. Now, we don't have time to look at this in any great detail, but if you'd like to explore the literary structure of the book a little more, then I'd recommend you view the short video on the Bible Project website. 
Now, if you're listening to this on the podcast on the Belmont website, now would be a great opportunity for you just to pause this and to read Esther chapter 1 in its entirety. So let's look again at some of the verses in the first section of chapter 1 up to verse 9. Now, it would seem very clear that the writer of the book wants us to get a sense of the scale of the king's power and the splendor of his empire. Nothing, so Xerxes thought, was beyond his reach, and no one could hope to match his greatness or his generosity. Look at what it says, Esther chapter 1, verse 4. For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. The palace at Susa, according to archaeologists, towered over the city. It was visible for miles around. In the book of Genesis, we read about something similar. This is what we read, Genesis chapter 11, verses 2 to 4. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. In addition, Xerxes' opinion of himself and his power found expression in the extravagance of the possessions and splendor he chose to surround himself with. Look at verses 6 to 7. They leave us in no doubt about that. But, as we've looked and read chapter 1, there is a twist in the tale. Because whilst Xerxes appears on the surface to be in total control of everything that's happening around him, it is then that we are introduced to his wife, Queen Vashti. The writer and blogger Whitney Woolard writes this, And so the idol gleams on his throne, his power absolute, his word inexorable. Or is it? Look again, if you would, from verses 10 to verses 12 of Esther chapter 1. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehumen, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zetha, and Carsus, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. The retelling of this section of Esther chapter 1 within Jewish tradition portrays Queen Vashti as a disobedient wife who deserved to be punished for her insolence. But over the past few years, the story of Vashti's refusal to be paraded, most likely naked, except for her royal crown, is being reevaluated. Since many see the story not as a story of disobedience, but rather as a story of resistance, a story that reveals the importance of standing up to power, of not colluding with damaging and degrading behaviour, of calling out injustice and resisting empire. Moreover, Whilst the words of scripture have remained the same, God's inspired spirit-filled word, the understanding has shifted. And that is because the world has changed and we have changed. 
2017, the MeToo hashtag went viral, becoming a global phenomenon within a matter of weeks, emboldening millions of women and also men to name their experiences of sexual harassment and abuse. What had in many places been a shadowy secret was brought into the light. The scale of the pandemic of abuse was being exposed. Systems and structures that had colluded to silence women were brought under close scrutiny. Serial abusers who had concealed their crimes with threats and non-disclosure agreements were exposed and brought to justice. This is what Rabbi Vanessa Ox has to say. Vashti is one of the strongest role models we have for girls and women. She refuses to be exploited. What's more, we have the story in our sacred text of her refusal, and that's powerful. The king is furious, and after consulting his advisers, he banishes his wife from the palace and issues an edict. The edict says, as you can read in Esther chapter 1, verse 20, the latter half of that verse, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. And here was a moment for personal introspection, but Xerxes ignores the opportunity. He chooses punishment over repentance. He chooses cruelty over grace. In looking for someone better than she, what Xerxes really means, of course, is someone that he can exert power over, someone he can abuse, someone compliant, someone who simply won't rock the boat. The writer of Psalm 2 encourages us to see the futility of setting ourselves up as tin pot gods. Listen to what he has to say. Verses 1 to verse 6 of Psalm chapter. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in high laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The Jewish scholar Rabbi Erwin Kula, the president of the National Jewish Centre for Learning and Leadership, when asked whether he thought Vashti was a good role model for Jewish women, replied like this. The question isn't whether Vashti is a good role model. Instead, the question is, what do our responses to Vashti teach us about ourselves and our relationships? Sadly, it's not that easy to find very many good examples in the Old Testament narrative where a man takes up a woman's cause or speaks effectively on her behalf. However, if we keep turning the pages, we will eventually encounter a man who does, and does so repeatedly. A man who publicly defends a woman whose great sin, most likely sexual, has been forgiven. A woman whose gratitude leads to her weeping over his feet and anointing them with oil. Can you imagine the sniggering and the lewd remarks that were probably rippling through the onlookers as she did so? And this is the same man who refuses to join the crowd in baying for the blood of a woman caught in the act of adultery. The crowd that was desperate to vilify the woman while curiously being indifferent to the man she was with. Jesus shames the crowd into leaving and then sends her home with gentle words. 
And it's in the person and the character of Christ that we see the stark contrast between an exploitative and repressive empire and the kingdom of God. Just stop for a moment. Just, just think about this. Just think about these contrasts as I say them. Where Xerxes' empire enslaves, extorts, degrades and shames, Christ's kingdom frees, enriches, cleanses and exalts. Where Xerxes throws a party in a desperate attempt to win respect and bolster the glory of his throne, Jesus sets a table, a wedding feast, for those whose worship he has secured through personal sacrifice. Where Xerxes abuses, uses, strips and degrades his bride, Jesus washes, clothes, cleanses, adorns, nourishes and cherishes his. Where Xerxes imputes shame, Jesus removes it. Where Xerxes' word returns utterly void and impotent, Jesus' word goes out in power and never returns empty or of intent or accomplishment. Whilst God's name may not feature in the book, we cannot escape the writer's relentless desire to invite his or her readers to compare God with his rivals. Now, how does the lavish description at the start of the chapter look to us now? Do we see it for what it truly is? History provides an interesting and very salutary footnote to the story of Esther chapter 1. Nowhere in the biblical text that we have just read do we get any inkling as to why Xerxes decided to host such a lavish banquet. Was it primarily to flaunt his wealth and his power, or was there another reason behind it? The historian Herodotus refers to these banquets in his book, The Histories. There, he states that Xerxes hosted the lavish parties to confer with his military leaders about a possible invasion of Greece. Xerxes' father, Darius I, had been soundly defeated in 490 BC. His invasion had been resisted. Xerxes' army had been routed. And Xerxes seeks revenge. Herodotus quotes Xerxes as saying, I will throw a bridge over the Hellespont and march an army through Europe against Greece, and thereby I may obtain vengeance from the Athenians for the wrongs committed by them against the Persians and my father. Unfortunately for Xerxes, the ostentatious display of wealth and power that we have read about at the start of the book, at the start of chapter 1, could not guarantee a Persian victory. Xerxes, like his father before him, was defeated and his dream of ruling over a worldwide empire was forever extinguished. And as we work through this book, we will encounter more acts of resistance. We will read of more stories of abuse of power and viciously pursued self-promotion. Like God's people centuries ago, we will be faced with questions about whether we are prepared to resist and stand firm, to not assimilate or imitate the empire, but instead to stand up for God's kingdom. Over the last few months, uh, the book of uh, Romans and chapter 12 has been uppermost in our thoughts. We've had it on the front of our term card on quite a few occasions, and we had it at the start of our series. 
that we had recently in our morning service, the cost of living. This is what we read, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is what we are being called to as we resist the empire. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Let's pray, shall we, as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive and living and relevant to each and every generation. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as we have looked at chapter 1 of Esther and as we will look at the remaining chapters of this book, that you will help us to see something that will encourage us to resist empire, that will encourage us to stand up and to speak out for the name of Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray, to be those who pray for your kingdom to come. We ask these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.